What in the world is God doing? Have you ever asked that question? How many times have you asked that question in the last couple of months? Or at other times in your life when when tragedy strikes, when things don't make sense, when, when evil seems to prevail, when justice is delayed. Maybe you've asked even this week. Habakkuk was certainly asking this question again and again, God, what in the world are you doing? We ask God this question when these kinds of things happen to us or around us, but many also ask the question more broadly when they read about God in the Bible. They read of God's actions, especially in the Old Testament. They read things like his condoning of or even commanding the killing of large numbers of people even women and children. How, how gruesome. What in the world is that about? What in the world are you doing? Well, what if I told you this morning that it was possible to always know the answer to that question? What in the world is God doing? We've been spending our time in these last few weeks in the minor prophet Habakkuk. We've got Two weeks, today and next Sunday, and we will finish. And today, Habakkuk is giving us the answer to that question, what in the world is God doing? We'll find it together in these verses out of chapter 3. I also haven't asked you to stand for the reading of Scripture while you've been at home in your living rooms. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Not that it's magical, but it's a way for our physical posture to hopefully reflect the attitude of our hearts of submissiveness to the authority of God's word. Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. 
My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray to him now for the help that we need. Oh, Father, this ancient prophecy recorded thousands of years ago has truth in it that can and will and needs to change our hearts. But you, Holy Spirit, have to be the one to impress that truth upon our otherwise cold, dead, and unresponsive hearts. Holy Spirit, would you do that this morning? Would you open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear truth, gospel truth, truthful of hope and encouragement for our weary souls? Would you do that this morning? Would you bring glory to yourself in the process? Would you exalt and honor Lord Jesus as we pray and ask in his name? Amen. Please be seated. I'm not going to keep you in suspense long. I want to fairly quickly answer the question, what in the world is God doing? And then I want to explore a bit of how God goes about doing what he's doing and why it's so important. There's an outline in the worship guide if you have printed that out or if you've got that pulled up on your device. First point on the outline is this question, what in the world is God doing? And I got to tell you that misunderstanding what he's doing is common. Habakkuk even points to a little of that misunderstanding in the first verse of today's passage, verse 8. You see, many times the misunderstanding comes from uh, this question arises when we see displays of God's wrath and anger. It can be confusing. It can be scary. It can be unsettling. It can cause us to jump to wrong conclusions. Habakkuk asks, as if for the sake of the people, is God mad at rivers and seas? That seems like an odd question. Where did it come from? Well, what Habakkuk has been doing and continues to do is to recount God's past acts of miraculous power. And he's often done some pretty miraculous things as it relates to rivers and seas, has he not? Was he, was he mad at the Nile River when he turned it to blood? Was he angry at the Red Sea when he split it in two right down the middle? Was he mad at the Jordan River when he caused it to stop flowing like he did? Habakkuk's giving us some pretty vivid imagery here. Powerful word pictures. And we can struggle a bit at times to to figure out what's going on, what it all means, what in the world God is doing. But we've got our first hint even here in verse 8. There's a clue here. And then it's going to be spelled out more explicitly in another verse. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Is God just in a bad mood? 
Is he just angry in general, lashing out at whatever he finds close to him? Or does it have a purpose? He's riding in a chariot of salvation. Clue number one. uh, Verse 13 is even more specific. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You went out for... For is a purpose word. It tells us why God did something. He did it for salvation. And not just salvation in general, but the salvation of his people. Friends, I would argue strongly that this is the answer to our question. What in the world is God doing? God is always bringing glory to himself through the salvation of his own people. Let me repeat that. What in the world is God doing? God is always bringing glory to himself through the salvation of his own people. So the next time you're confused about something, the next time you're wondering, the next time you're asking that question, what in the world is God doing? I challenge you, search the scriptures as you read them daily. Search the scriptures and find an instance for me of God working that is not an example of his glorifying himself by working out the salvation of his people. You will be searching for a very long time because that's the theme of scripture. Now, if he is always working for the salvation of his people. If that's what he is always about, then we should pause and quickly address who his people are. Who are the people God is always working to save? And let me just give you a warning. Some of you might be triggered. I'm going to get a little Presbyterian on you, which I think is just being biblical. The people of God that he's always working to save is not some nebulous, undefined group of folks. It's not a group of people as yet to be determined based upon whether they choose to be a part of God's people. No. Another important recurring theme of Scripture is that the people of God has been determined by God. It's been predetermined by God. Now, why is saying this important? It's not some trivial point of theology. It's vital. If we're going to have hope in the end, this is the foundation that it's built upon. And I'm going to explain a little bit more of that when we get to our third point. But let me just say now, this is not a point of theology, a point of biblical understanding that should be a source of pride or a place for arrogance. Saying that the people of God has been predetermined by him is actually quite humbling if you understand it properly. God himself pulls no punches in explaining it. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And if you stopped right there, maybe you would say, yeah, how about me? Look at me. I must be something special, right? But you need to keep reading. Verse 7, 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. You were the weakest, you were the least. See, God's always about picking the weak things that he might strengthen them and be glorified. He's always picking the foolish things of the world that he might shame the wise. It's humbling to know that for no other reason than for his glory, he chose to be in his people who he did. All right, so we've answered the what question. What in the world is God doing? He's always bringing glory to himself by working out the salvation of his people. Now let's consider how he goes about doing what he's doing. How does God go about this saving work? This saving work is very often a defending work. Habakkuk is revealing to us here in this great vivid imagery, a divine warrior. Our God is a warrior who fights for us, who defends us from our greatest enemies. Habakkuk shows us in these verses, our God is a mighty warrior and he's got many weapons at his disposal. Verse 9 says he's got, he's calling for many arrows. Read down through these verses. He's making use of all of creation. He's making it all submit to his authority. Mountains are writhing as if in pain. The sun and the moon stop their ordinary travels at his command. The waters lift their hands as if to say, I surrender to what it is you're commanding me to do on your behalf. Look down through these verses at how powerfully he defeats the enemies of God's people. He threshes them. He crushes them. He pierces them. He takes their evil, verse 14, their own arrows and turns them back upon themselves. Causes the evil that they were planning to backfire. And you'll see that's a frequent pattern in Scripture. In the book of Esther, Haman was hanged on the gallows that he had built. Daniel's adversaries were thrown into the lion's den that they intended for his demise, certainly not for their own. Again and again and again in Scripture, God is turning evil on its head. You see, understanding that God is a warrior who fights for and depends, defends his people helps us actually make sense of some of those really hard places in the Old Testament. Some of the things that are really hard to swallow about God's wrath and about his anger. And why in the world would he kill all those people? Whenever you see that and you're wondering what is going on, God's only and always doing that whenever his people are in jeopardy. Whenever his people are in danger. Whenever enemies are threatening his people. Whenever their survival, whenever their preservation is on the line, then God, our warrior, our great defender, comes in and defeats all of our enemies. And not just the enemies that are external to us. Because sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Our rebellion. Our sin our idolatry, our incessant tendency to try to make work, make life work all on our own, all by ourselves. We've got this. We can handle it. That's an enemy, and it has to die. 
our mighty warrior will defend us against anything that jeopardizes our safety, that endangers our relationship with him. He'll do that even if it's us, even if we're the thing endangering our relationship, even if we're the thing that is putting us in jeopardy. So sometimes his defense for us is discipline of us. Remember, that's the context here in Habakkuk. God's people have been hardened in their idolatry and unrepentance. And the Lord has raised up their ruthless enemy, the Babylonians, that they might come and discipline God's people, that they might come and devastate God's people, carry them a long way off for a long time into exile, long enough to teach them the hard, painful lesson of obedience, of loving him with all their heart and soul and strength, of having no other gods before him. God is so committed to the salvation of his people that he will do whatever it takes to safely preserve them to the end. Even if it's painful for his people, even if the discipline hurts. And we see in these verses from Habakkuk, The discipline the Lord's bringing hurts. Verse 16. Look at what he's feeling, what he's dreading. He knows it's coming. He knows God is just to bring it. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness or decay enters into my bones. I'm weak. My legs are trembling. He knows it's coming. And he knows that God is ultimately good to bring it because it's for their salvation. It is not pain for pain's sake. It is pain with a specific purpose. I was thinking this week that oftentimes we look at God's responses in Scripture. We look at the discipline that he brings, and I think that we're often tended to think that God is overreacting at times. That he brings down the hammer so heavy and so hard. Surely that must be a little bit of an overreaction. Sometimes he does it in Scripture when people are doing something seemingly as innocuous as grumbling and complaining. And he brings down the hammer hard, y'all. Is he overreacting? Or are we often underappreciating both his holiness and the grave danger that our sin places us in? I think it's the latter. I think oftentimes we underappreciate his holiness and the danger that our sin and our idolatry places us in. The writer to the Hebrews is very helpful in understanding the discipline of the Lord, in understanding that it's not punishment. It's discipline. God's not doing this. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to to Hebrews. Flip over there because we're going to read a few verses. When God is disciplining us, he's not making us pay for what we've done. Don't think about it like that. When God is disciplining us, he brings pain in our lives to win us back. To see the folly and the futility of what we've been doing, 
and bring us to a point where by his grace, maybe we won't desire to do that anymore. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. These are gold. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. There's a strong English word there, and that's it. That's the word intended. You are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What in the world is God doing? He's bringing glory to himself through the salvation of his people. How is he doing that? Through defending and disciplining us. Now, why is that such a good thing? It's a good thing because it gives us hope. Third point on your outline, and y'all, this is big. I, I hope that you get this and that you latch onto it. It floored me this week to think about it again and to meditate on it again. In these verses, God through Habakkuk is reminding us of how he has protected his people in the past in mighty and miraculous ways, right? So think about those rivers and those seas from earlier, right? People enslaved in Egypt, God is moving toward getting them out of their slavery, and he turns the Nile River into blood. Later, he gets them out, but then they're in between a rock and a hard place. They're fleeing Egypt, but they're running into a dead end. They're up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is hot on their tails, encroaching quickly. What are they going to do? They don't do anything, but they get rescued again. Dry land appears in front of them as the Red Sea is parted. Then the moment they get through, swoosh, the dry land is covered. Now there's a dead Egyptian army in the bottom of the Red Sea. They're getting to the promised land, but the Jordan River stands in the way. And so, of course, it stops flowing at just the right time. Again and again and again, God shows up for his people. Sometimes at the very last minute, when they're on the brink, God through Habakkuk is reminding his people of all these times he's shown up in the past so that they might have hope in the present and the future that he'll do it again. Won't he do it again? If he's done it all these times before, won't he do it again? But surely somewhere God's people have to be asking, will he? Are you sure? Maybe we've 
blown it too badly this time. Maybe we've blown it one too many times. This is actually a very strange place for God's people to be very hopeful and resolute. To know with great certainty that God will come and rescue once again for the 999th time. Even as they await the discipline of the Lord that they know they deserve, isn't this a strange place to dig your heels in and say, I know that God's going to rescue us. I know that God's going to defend me even in the midst of having blown it again and blown it bigger than the last time. Friends, to have hope in those moments is amazing. It is amazing grace. And this goes back to our first point. This is why we understand why it's so important that we understand who the people of God are and why and how they became the people of God. The people of God are the people of God not because of any worthiness on their part, far from it. So if worthiness doesn't have any part to play in making us a part of the people of God, then our continued worthiness doesn't have a role in us remaining the people of God. No, if you and I are a part of God's people, we remain a part of God's people because he causes us to remain. He continues to defend us and discipline us again and again and again. He has to. He is obligated to. He is duty-bound to continue defending and disciplining us. He cannot stop because he's promised. He's made a covenant with his people. The things that Habakkuk is describing here, the things that will be done to the Babylonians after God is done using them to discipline his people, the things described here are part of the covenant curses that God spelled out in Scripture. Sometime later, you can turn to Deuteronomy 32 and look. God promises he will defend his people from all their enemies. He made this covenant promise. He's obligated to make good on it. You should also spend some time in Genesis 15. We're not going to turn there now. I'll give you a, a brief synopsis of this strange, strange passage. God is making his covenant with Abraham. And there's this elaborate ceremony back then that people who were making a covenant went through. The parties of the covenant would take a bunch of animals. They would cut them in half. They would line up the halves of the animals to make a little aisle in which you could walk between. And the parties of the covenant would then walk between all those animal pieces as if to say, I'm entering into this covenant... And if I don't uphold my end of the deal, may I be like these animals that have been split in two. May I be cut in two if I don't uphold my end of the bargain. But then a strange thing happens. After Abraham gets all the animals cut in two and lined up, God prevents Abraham from walking in between the animals. 
He causes him to fall into a deep sleep, a deep darkness. And in that sleep, he sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass in between the animal pieces instead of him. God was telling him, even in that dream, this is not a two-party covenant. This is not a a two-way street. This is not a, I'll uphold my end of the deal and you uphold your end of the deal. This is God saying, I'm doing the whole blasted thing. This is on me. And if I don't make good on my covenant, may I be like these animals cut into. Friends, you're persevering to the end. My persevering to the end is guaranteed. It's guaranteed by our great warrior God. He will not allow any enemy, external or internal, to get in the way of the salvation of his people. Now, I'm not sure of what sin you're in the middle of right at this moment. Whether you think you've done it one too many times or blown it too big, you've just gone too far this time. Friends, you haven't. You can hold out hope even in the midst of your failure, of awaiting the discipline of the Lord because it's coming. You can hold out hope that he will make good on his covenant promise in your life. Now, this certainty, this hope, obviously comes at a great, great price. Final point on your outline. It comes at a great cost to himself. Verse 13 has this little phrase in it that seems a bit awkward. It gives the commentators great fits knowing what to deal with it. Because it says you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Well, what do you mean for the salvation of your anointed? We normally think about the anointed. That word there, it's often pointing to Messiah. It's often pointing to Christ. Jesus doesn't need saving. And so some folks have said, oh, well, maybe he's calling his people anointed. But that doesn't fit very well because it's singular here, not plural. So it must be referring to Jesus. But let me tell you, friends, Jesus doesn't need any saving. I think what God is saying through, the, through Habakkuk here is that this is Jesus's salvation. This is salvation that belongs to the anointed one, that belongs to Messiah, that will be accomplished by Messiah. That's why it's saying salvation of Messiah. It's his. He accomplishes it. He comes and he crushes the head of our greatest enemies. There's head crushing, talking, talked about there in verse 13. Ultimately, Jesus comes and crushes, as promised in Genesis 3, the head of our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And he does so by suffering. <clears throat> suffering the wrath of God that we deserve to be poured out on us. He paid for it once and for all. And that's why that's why when God is disciplining us, we know that he's not making us pay for our sin because we know he already made Jesus pay for it. That's why we can know that his discipline is always restorative. It's always bringing us back 
Friend, when you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord, it's him fighting for you. It's your mighty warrior defending you from your greatest enemies. And friend, if you have never trusted this one who paid, paid for your sin and rebellion, who made it possible for God's people to go from being his enemies to being his people, to being his family, to being his daughters and sons, to being at peace with him. If you've never trusted the one who made that possible, may today be the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Oh God, we praise you that you are our mighty warrior that you fight for your people, that you defend your people. You defend us from enemies external to us and you defend us from ourselves. When we would turn from you again and again, when we would turn to other lesser loves, cheap imitations, people and things that we look to to make life work apart from you, God, thank you that you are relentless in your defense of us. That you always succeed in defeating our enemies. Lord, when it is discipline, when it hurts, when it is painful, would you show us a glimpse of your grace and your mercy? Show us that it's for our good. Show us that it's not you pushing us away. It's not you making us pay. It's you drawing us back. It's you commanding that we come back to you. Would you, in these moments, allow these deep truths of the gospel to penetrate even the hardest of our hearts here in our midst, on the Facebook Live, wherever. Spirit, come in power and do the work that only you can do. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.